Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you could ask one question and know for sure that you would get a true answer, uh, what question would you ask? You know, and I think you can think of the ones that come immediately to mind. You know, maybe it's the top of your head, like which cryptocurrency is going to actually survive that, you know, that I should invest in? We, we begin alpha in, in this way um, qu- quite a lot. We say, we, we put it like this, if you could ask God, if God exists one question and you knew you'd get God to answer, what question would you want to ask? Um, my, my kids want to do this around the dinner table. They'll throw out this type of hypothetical, you know, like trying to get at someone's favorite thing, someone's most important thing. Uh, these are the types of things that, that get at the secret considerations of our heart. If you could ask one question and know you would get an answer to that question, what, what would you ask? And, and then we have to go through these considerations. What would we really, truly, in our deepest heart want to ask? Not what we think we should want to ask or what other people would expect us to ask. You know, Maybe your question is, what would make me truly happy? What would bring the most joy to my life? Or what is my purpose in the world? These are the types of questions people ask at the beginning of the Alpha Course. Uh, Why is there so much suffering? If there's some kind of loving God in the world, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Crucial, important questions. What am I supposed to do with my one life? How how should I be, be living? What's going to happen? What's going to happen with the pandemic? What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen with our world? What is God really like? If you could ask one question and know that you would get a true answer, what would you ask? As you just heard read, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous stories in Jesus' teaching, the story of the Good Samaritan. And just before Jesus tells this famous story of the Good Samaritan, a question like this is asked to him. 
the, the, the story opens, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is in that category of questions that are at the deepest level of the human experience. There are these, these soul level questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the type of question that if you had the answer to it, it would shed light on everything else in your life. I had this little imagination, maybe you do the same thing, where I sometimes imagine going back with the mind I have now to you know, a certain point in my childhood. And what would I do you know, differently in those situations given what I know now? And this is the type of question the man is asking. What is an answer that would shed light on everything that I do, on, on all the, uh, the ways that I live and exist in the world? He's basically saying, how can I live fully and know that I'll live forever? But here's the wild thing about his question is, um, first of all, it doesn't seem like, you know, Luke throws in this little detail that he's asking the question to test Jesus. It doesn't seem like this man is simply asking the question out of some deep soul curiosity, out of, out of a hunger for, to, you know, to know for sure that he has the answer to the question. He wants to test who Jesus is. He's sort of saying, how much authority should I give this person in my life? And, and there even seems to be certain level of impossibility in the way he asked the question. And, and actually, um, you know, if you if you study this, you see this is a common way of phrasing the question at the time, but it's also revealing as well. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to receive an inheritance? Well. <laughs> You know, you're sort of too late at that point. What must I do to be born into a certain family so certain, uh, you know, family inheritance come, comes to me? Well, it's, it's too late. There's nothing I can do to receive an inheritance. There's a, almost a paradox in the man's question. And maybe that's actually what the lawyer is getting at trying to hear. He's uh, you know, a, a, an expert in Torah, an expert in the Jewish law. And maybe he wants to hear that, that eternal life, this life you know, with, with God you know, living fully now and forever, isn't for everyone. That it's just for those who've been born into Abraham's family, into the right type of family. We sense this a little bit because of his next question, which is, who is my neighbor? And the text tells us that he asked that question in order to justify himself. He says, how far should my love extend? Who is included in this family? Who, is, who should be included in my love? But here's the other thing. <laughs> he asked Jesus a question and then Jesus asks him a question back and he gives the right answer to his own question, which is an interesting detail in this entire account of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Woody Allen, Allen once, uh, you know, kind of famously joked, why does a rabbi answer a question with a question? And after a long pause, the answer comes, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? And we get this with Jesus over and over again. He seems to uh, often discern not just the surface level questioning that he's receiving, but the heart motivation of someone who's speaking to him. And he'll often flip a question back to them or invite them to participate in their own question in such a way that reveals the true nature of their heart. And so we see this going on. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So Jesus puts the question back to him. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So this is really easy to skip over, but the man knows the answer to his question. His problem wasn't, this is the exact same answer that Jesus gave when, he, when he's asked to summarize the law and the prophets. He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The problem for this man wasn't that he didn't have the information that he needed. So often for us in our lives, the problem is not that we don't have the information or there, there's not a possibility of getting at the information that we need. The problem is his heart. It was his willingness and ability to live the answer to his question, not just to give the answer to his question. He gives the right answer, but Centuries have passed since Moses gave the law that he's summarizing and no one, no expert, no religious person, no righteous man, no righteous woman has been able to actually do this, to love the Lord with your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and we sense the man knows this and so he asks a qualifying question. Okay, then who is my neighbor? How far does this have to extend? What's the, almost like the bare minimum that I have to do to make sure that I get in? And, and a lot of American Christianity in the West has been obsessed with this, this question over the last hundred years and not without, without some good reason, but how do I make sure I end up in the right place is, is one of the, the primary questions we've come to the Bible to ask. I want to make sure that when my time is up on this earth, I end up in the right place. And, and that's a very important and, and, and reasonable question to ask, but the way we ask it sometimes exposes a reality of our heart. So Jesus knows this man's trying to trap him. He, he, he knows that um, the, the, the man is trying to justify himself. And so he tells a story. And many of the parables do this. They, they are a way to tell a story that shows the hearers their heart. They're a, a way to sometimes say a really offensive, even scandalous thing, but to say it cloaked in a story. And so the hearers can take the story away and let the, um, almost like the, the offense is, is a slow release capsule. It doesn't hit you all in the face once as if he just stated the, bl the blunt truth, but he gives them a story they can walk away and work with. It's ways to show that the kingdom of God often flips the expectations of the world on its head and defies our expectations. Jesus seems to be doing that over and over and again. But if we're going to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? We have hospitals named after the Good Samaritan. The last Seinfeld episodes are based on them breaking the Good Samaritan law and being thrown in jail. If, if we know any of Jesus' stories, we know the story of the Good Samaritan, this guy who helps this other guy who was left for dead when a lot of good people left, you know, passed, passed him by. We know the basics of the story. But if we're going to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. We need to, we need more than just these popular references to the story. We, we, we need to, to know that the, the story wasn't told in response to the question, what do I do if I find someone in need? What do I do if I find someone beaten up on the side of the road? What do I do if I find someone in trouble? It was told in response to the questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? 
Whatever is, is being addressed in this story touches on these most profound questions for the human experience. The man is asking basically, how can I make sure that I live well? How can I make sure that I end up in the right place? And Jesus tells this story. He seems to be directing the man to a reality that is, is right there but is really challenging for us. So I want you to go back and think in your mind, what was the question that that came up for you when I first asked that? If you could ask one question and know that you would get a true answer, what would it be? What's the thing that's truly on the top of your heart or at the bottom of your soul or connected to your deepest longing? This man is saying, how can I make sure I live well? How can I make sure I end up in the right place? What security, what joy, what freedom would come if if we knew the answer and could live the answer to that question. Jesus seems to direct this man that the reality he's looking for is found in relationships that he's already in or that he can begin right away. It's not something that he has to delay until after he he passes from this life into the age to come. Eternal life, this is something that shows up over and over again in the New Testament. Eternal life in the New Testament is a quality of life that can begin at any point in our natural life and certainly does continue forever, but it's not something that will simply begin one day down the road when we die. So uh, we're going to say more about this later, but eternal life as the New Testament holds us out, uh, you know, holds out to us is about being connected to a certain type of relationship, a relationship with God that influences and impacts our relationship with one another. And actually that is the very heart of what eternal life is in the New Testament. So now we're up to the point where Jesus tells the story. And here's the story. Um, you, you just heard it. We're just going to look at a couple of details that help um, you know, give it its impact to its first hearers. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, above the level of the Mediterranean Sea. And Jericho is 850 feet below. So if you're doing the quick math there, you're seeing this road descends from Jerusalem to Jericho, um, you know, almost uh, 3,500 feet in, in, in this winding 17-mile journey. So there are places on the road that are really physically dangerous. There are 300 feet drop-offs with no shoulder on this road. This isn't a road that you ideally would have wanted to travel alone because it's a dangerous road on its own, but it's also a road that's notorious for thieves. Many sections of the road left you exposed to ambush. You would come around a corner, you'd have no idea who was there. Someone could lie and wait, which is apparently um, what happens. There's actually a good reason to believe that Jesus wasn't just pulling these examples out of thin air for this story, that there were uh, you know, often told examples of this exact thing happening, that Jesus might have been actually referencing an actual event that many in his day would have known about. But the man is attacked. He's stripped, he's humiliated, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left half dead, and there's no way for him to save himself. That's where the story begins. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. 
he passed by on the other side. The, the story doesn't tell us whether the priest is coming from Jerusalem or he's traveling from Jericho up to Jerusalem, but either way, more than likely, he's a part of the temple ministry system. He's going to participate in Israel's worship. He's going to, to he's either going to or returning from a, a, uh, a, a stint where he had a shift as a priest at, at, at the temple. And so he has some fast calculations he has to make. Do I ex- expose and risk my rich purity and delay the opportunity of getting to where I'm going and participating in the ministry that I'm meant to participate in or being reunited with my family? Do I take on the risk? I don't know who this person is. I don't know what nation this person is from. And so he makes the calculation and he passes by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. So these men would have been serving as a part of Israel's worship and ministry serving in the temple, they would have known the law. If, the, if this expert in the law could give a summary of what Torah said, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, they certainly would have been able to do the same. And they make the choice uh, of, of, of letting something else guide their, their decision in the moment. They choose their ritual purity and, and distance. Robert Farrar Capon says, um, consider the picture. Two official representatives of atonement, as understood by the religious authorities of Jesus' day, find themselves unable or unwilling to see a wounded loser as having any claim on their attention or any relevance to their work. Already, the man would be getting uncomfortable. The listeners would be getting uncomfortable. Here are two you know, essential heroes of, of their day, of their moment, a priest and a Levite who would be helping direct people to God, to Israel's, you know, co- the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh, atonement and mercy and forgiveness, and yet they're passing by this person in need in order to keep their respectability, in order to keep their time frame, in order to keep their ritual purity. A lot of very understanding reasonable explanations for why they can't make this man their neighbor in this moment. Another interesting thing is who comes next is shocking. And and we know it's shocking because uh, we're going to get to the tension between the Jewish people and the the Samaritans. But there was also a way these types of rabbinic stories would go. And so if you had a priest and a Levite, you knew the next person to come down the road would be a Jewish lay person. A a lay man uh, would come next. That's the way the format of these stories go. And so if the priest didn't help, perhaps the Levite would help. And if the Levite didn't help, perhaps the Jewish layman would help. And maybe Maybe Jesus was going to give, you know, uh, uh, the type of story that exalted the everyday regular person, but he does something way more scandalous. It says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, so he disrupts the format. He does this over and over again in his parables. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to to, to where the man was, and when he saw Jesus, he took pity on him. So if you've heard this story, uh, even once in, in church at any point in your life, you've heard about the tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. There was, there was racial tension between them. Um, it was a scandal that Jesus stops and speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well at another point in the Gospels. The Samaritan, the Samaritans were descended from Jewish people who had intermarried with the enemies of the Jewish people. So there was, um, 
There was racial tension, but there was more than that. It was theological tension about where the true temple was and how the people were meant to worship and what the covenants of God meant and who they included, right? They, they, um, the, the Jewish people had a massive amounts of anger and frustration and bitterness towards the Samaritans that they had mixed their religious practice with the other pagans in the area and specifically that they had built an alternative temple. A commentator describing the tension of the day said the Jewish people regarded the Samaritans as apostate people who had sold their spiritual birthright. Right? There's stories of that over and over in Israel's history who had sold their spiritual birthright. After all, the Samaritans had actively participated in the defilement of the land. They had polluted the bloodline. They were guilty of, the, of idolatry. And the Samaritans had equal reasons to hate the Jews. They had destroyed their temple. Bottom line, they hated each other. And along comes this Samaritan, and he sees the man beaten, humiliated, left half dead, and says he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own dock. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So, With every detail, Jesus is reinforcing the absurdity of what's happening in this story. Here comes a Samaritan man who sees the man who takes pity on him, who better than the priest and the Levite demonstrates the true heart of Torah, the true heart of the law, to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. But he also puts himself in in incredible risk and, and, and personal cost. It's dangerous territory. He knows for a fact there are bandits in the area. He's risking his own neck. He's exposed to misunderstanding. If he walks into a Jewish town with a wounded Jewish man on his back, why are the people not going to assume that he was the one who wounded him in the first place? But he shows incredible kindness, right? This man was is as good as dead, and yet he is rescued. He is saved. So all of a sudden, the uncomfortable territory of the story is getting increasingly intense for the man who asked the question, because he's saying very clearly, your neighbor also includes your enemy. Your neighbor also includes your enemy. He saw him, right? We could go through each of these, right? And, 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 and see how, how we are to be neighbors to one another. He saw him. We have to really see each other, which means sometimes that means we need to look up from our phones, look up from our small distractions, look up from these tiny, this tiny world of comforts we've built for ourselves. He saw him. He had compassion on him. He was, he was moved. We see this over and over with Jesus, that he was moved from his very depths with compassion for the people before he feeds the 5,000 as he looks over Jerusalem. This is the way of Jesus-type love. He acted on that compassion, right? We know that the lawyer had the right answer in his mind, but the, the Samaritan is acting on his compassion. He went to him. He uses his own oil and wine. He, 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 he travels along this dangerous road on foot with the man on, on his animal. He brings him to safety. He pays this high cost for this man's needs to be met. And by the end of the story, Jesus follows up with a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the only way he could reply, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise.
go and do likewise. Interesting, he doesn't say, go forth in this new understanding of who your neighbor is and keep that squarely in your mind as you travel in the world. He doesn't say, change your mind about your neighbor. He says, go and do likewise. Become an active participant in this other way of seeing the world and being in the world. That is eternal uh, life. And we, we need, we need to, to, to dive into that and, and, and clarify. And I think the way we can do it is to quickly answer, where are you in this story? The man was being confronted with that. Where am I in this story? So we need to ask the question, where am I in this story? Where is Christ in this story? And this is one of the ones I've wrestled with the most. I've taught this parable before and emphasized a a different place that, that Christ was in this story. But where are you? Where is Christ? And where are the answers to the questions that's, that prompted this parable? If Jesus, this master teacher is answering the question, how do I inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Then where am I in the story? Where is Christ in the story? And what are the answers? We're going to move quickly through this. So first of all, where are you in this story? And the way I want to put that to you is, in the honesty of your own hearts, how are you oriented towards Jesus in this you know, uh, moment in your life? What questions do you have for Jesus? What ways are you full of worship and joy at your relationship with Christ? Or what ways do, does uh, Jesus feel as distant in this time of your life as he ever has? If you were to put a question to Jesus right now from the bottom of your heart, what type of question would it be? Where do you find yourself? Do you want to test Jesus to find out, is he really truly reliable? Is is the things I've been taught to hope for from Christ really something that I can expect to receive? What's the actual nature of a, of a life connected to Jesus? Is this just something that I've that's been passed down from my parents or my church tradition, or is this something that I'm living truly in the heart of? Do How do I want to question Jesus? How do I want to test Jesus? But how, how about this? What are the ways in my life right now I'm seeking to justify myself? What is giving your life meaning? What is giving it purpose? What is giving it weight? What what, what is it primarily and most about? How about this? Where do I see myself finding really good excuses for ignoring the needs of the people around me and protecting myself? I just don't have the energy. I just don't have the time. I've just been through this pandemic. I just don't know where to begin. I really know the answers, but I don't know how to go about living them. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're, you're one of those people who is an example for the rest of us, and you really have been pouring yourselves out for your neighbor, and you feel absolutely nearly spent. You're, you're the Samaritan right after he drops this man off at the end. I don't have any more money. I don't have any more time. I don't have any more energy. I've given, I'm, I'm all the way to the end of myself, and I don't know what, what to do. If I run into another person on the road, I have nothing to give them. Or maybe you're, you're listening and you're wondering, I don't know my place in this story. I don't know if I'm the man beaten on the side of the road. I don't know if I'm the man, the, the people passing by. I don't know if I'm the one trying to, to help or I'm the one putting the question to Jesus. And I think that's an okay prayer to say, God, will you show me myself? Will you show me my heart? Will you show me where I am? That's the beginning of the shift 
to what I think Jesus is getting at with eternal life. Because when we keep ourselves in the place of the examiner, the way this lawyer is doing, we, we, we're desperate to keep ourselves in the place of power and examination. I've got my questions, and if they're answered satisfactorily, then I'll consider moving along to the next step. We're marketed to our entire lives that if we just get the right materials around us, the right experiences, the right, the right money, the, you know, the, the, the right vacations, the right people, that, that, uh, that if we're just given the right materials, we can make a perfect life for ourselves. And that's why it's so appealing in our world right now to say things like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. You know, I'll be the curator of my own spiritual experience in the world. I'll take a bit from here, I'll take a bit from there, but ultimately I'm the one who's the final authority. And I'm the one who's in charge. And ultimately, that's the, the place we find the man asking Jesus this question. He's trying to, to remain in a place where he takes the best of the spiritual life around him, but he remains in charge. I'll be the one asking the questions. Thank you very much. Another thing that convicts me about this story is uh, the nature of the parable itself seems to show that even if we know the right answers and we aren't living them, we can be missing the very heart of, of our deepest longings. I just think about what if this man's question had been different? What if it had lost its pomp, its self-importance, its, its, its pride? What if, what if he had asked, how can I go about lo loving you know, God and my neighbor? What if he didn't say, look, I know the, the right answer, but he said, I have no idea how to go about living the answer to this question, making this the, 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 the true experience of my, of my soul. If he had been able to do that, he might have been ready for a rescue. If he had been able to strip himself of all of his, uh, of all of his pride and pomp and, and, and achievement and ability, he might have found himself ready for a rescue. He might have been able to see himself spiritually in the place of the man who fell among the robbers and been ready for a new heart. So where are you in this story? The second question is, where is Christ? And as I said, I, I used to think that Jesus was the Samaritan, um, in this story, right? At Grace's personal cost to himself, he finds the person who's spiritually dead and rescues them out of his own cost and heals them. And I don't think that's a terrible uh, explanation of this story. There, there, there are commentators you will read, and that's their interpretation of the story, that Jesus is putting himself in the place of the Samaritan. There, there's um, some details in Luke 9 that make that kind of scandalous because it says not only has Jesus experienced rejection from the Jewish leaders and the Jewish teachers, the, the Jewish authorities of his day, but after some ministry with, amongst the Samaritans that you know, began some initial intrigue, he's also experienced a rejection from the Samaritans. So he's experienced rejection on both sides. So to put himself in the place of the Samaritan is subversive and scandalous and would have communicated something on its own. So I used to think Jesus was the Samaritan, but now I actually think maybe Jesus in this story is the man who falls among the robbers. <laughs> the descent from Jerusalem to Jericho is a pretty clear metaphorical picture for the descent Jesus is making into Jerusalem in the latter part of his ministry as he's trying to explain to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem in order to die. He is descending into a place where he's going to be captured, where he's going to be accused, where he's going to be beaten, where he's going to be stripped, where he's going to be left for dead. 
This is a new stage uh, in his ministry. And so I think if we're looking for the Christ figure in this story, we can see the man who falls among the robbers. And this flips the picture of Israel's Messiah on its head, winning by winning, winning by conquering, winning by superior strength. And here is Jesus, as happens over and over again in the stories, as David was talking about last week with the lost sheep, here's winning by losing. Here's winning by being stripped and beaten and left for dead. So wherever we approach this story, if we're looking for Christ, no, no matter where we begin, we actually have to become participants with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's exactly what the Samaritan does. We, when uh, Jesus tells him, and go and do likewise, what is he saying? Go and do likewise like the Samaritan has done. And what has he done? He's gotten involved with the death and resurrection of this man that he found on the side of the road. I think Jesus is the one that we, 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 we find in the Gospels experiencing this man who's fallen among the robbers. The Samaritan becomes a participant in this man's death and resurrection. And that keeps us from making one of the mistakes you can make reading the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's the thing. Eternal life is about knowing the good way and then going out out of my own strength and willpower and doing the good way. It's essentially making uh, our salvation about our own good works. Now, good works come in eternal life. They're they're part of the story, but they're not the way we access it. I love what Robert Furhar Capon says. He says, For if the world could have been saved by providing good examples to which we could respond with appropriately good works, it would have been saved an hour and 20 minutes after Moses came down from Mount Sinai. This lawyer is giving a summary of the law, and if the law could have been followed century after century of example after example after family after family after tribe after nation had showed, no one was able to keep the law of Moses. No one was able to truly love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the crux of the difficulty of this passage. Go and do likewise. I absolutely can't. Uh, Capon says, salvation is not some felicitous state which we can lift ourselves to by our own bootstraps after the contemplation of sufficiently good examples. It is an utterly new creation into which we are brought by our death in Jesus' death and our resurrection in His. It comes not of our own efforts, however well inspired or successfully pursued, but out of the shipwreck of all human effort whatsoever. Praise Jesus for the gospel of grace. The Samaritan enters into the death of this man and enters in and becomes a participant in the resurrection. Now, the example begins to fail in that we don't raise Jesus from the dead. Of of course not. But we do have to become participants in His death and resurrection. That is where our salvation comes. And if you go about trying to be a good Samaritan on your own willpower and strength, there a time will come where you will become utterly burned out, utterly hardened, and you will realize I utterly can't do this on my own. The shipwreck of all human effort whatsoever. We want Christ in the story to be the good example that we go and follow, but Jesus comes to us in quite an unexpected way, walking willingly into the jaws of death, making this descent in order to to raise us to new life. So what are the answers in the story? How do I inherit eternal life? 
I think the simple answer that we see here, that we see Jesus praying in John 17, that we see Jesus demonstrating over and over in his life, eternal life is relationship. (laughs) Eternal life is relationship. Eternal life is to be brought into the family of God. And that goes about changing my neighbor. My neighbor no longer becomes someone that I just evaluate based on human metrics. Are they, how much are they like me? How much are they building me up? How much are they making my life better? But they become part of my family because I'm part of God's family and my family has been extended. I had an opportunity, one of my first uh, acting roles after university, I studied acting in college. Some of you are, already know that, but one of my first um, um, roles I got in a, in a professional theater production was in, in a show called No Exit. And my character was a valet in hell in this show. His job was to show people to their rooms where they would be staying for all eternity. Um, so this play was called No Exit. It was a, a, you know, an imagination by this French existential philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre. And uh, these three people are doomed to live together in this actually really comfortably, nicely appointed room, but they're never going to be rid of each other. And you see through the course of their dialogue and the course of the play that that's actually where the the horror lies. And so one of the the famous lines of the play comes near the end as the characters start to realize uh, their expectations about hell were all wrong. They thought it was going to be this place of, you know, fiery torment. But Garcon, one of the three characters, cries out, so this is hell. I'd never have believed it. You remember all we were told about the torture chambers and the fire and brimstone, the burning man, old wives tales. There's no need for red hot pokers. Hell is other people. Sartre's play, you know, sparked a lot of conversation, a lot of debate. What, what, what's he essentially try, trying to say? The characters in the play, perhaps those who hear it, who see it, are scandalized that their picture of hell was all wrong. And yet somehow it is still this awful, torturous place, perhaps even worse than they thought. And what Jesus seems to be doing and his answer to how do I inherit eternal life is saying your picture of heaven is all wrong. <laughs> You think it's just about arriving in a place of paradise and reward for your group. But actually, heaven is other people. Heaven is relationship. Heaven is a deep, abiding family connection with God, loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a deep, abiding, loving family connection to my neighbor. No matter what tribe, tongue, and nation they began in, they become part of our family because of the saving covenant love of God demonstrated to us in Jesus. Sartre says, hell is other people. And actually, Jesus comes and says, you know what? Heaven is other people, beginning with connection to God, our Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and then to everyone else in extension as a family. We enter in and participate with Jesus. Eternal life is this relationship. If you don't believe me, listen to how Jesus prays at the end of the Gospel of John. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son might glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If we make the answer to how do I inherit eternal life, try to follow the good example of the Good Samaritan, we are going to miss a massive part of the true gospel. 
Yes, we need to live a life of compassion and action, absolutely. But first, we need to live a life of union with Jesus. We participate in his death and resurrection. And it becomes our own death and resurrection where we surrender to our old way of life and, and come to live in union with God by the power of his spirit, by the power of gospel. Robert Capone, I've given you like four, four or five of his words already, but he says, we are not saved by what Jesus taught. We are certainly not saved by what we understand Jesus to have taught. We are saved by Jesus himself, dead and risen. Follow me, he says. It is the only word that finally matters. Where am I? Where is Christ? Where are the answers? The answers are eternal life is in relationship with God that changes my relationship with my neighbor. I don't go out and begin trying to be neighborly. I go out and begin union with Christ, letting his love change my heart to change how I see my neighbor. So who is my neighbor? On the surface level answer uh, to this question, what the story says is anyone in the human community that you come across in need. Your neighbor includes your enemy. One of the most scandalous things Jesus teaches over and over again. This is what makes heaven heaven, is that we're brought into family. We're brought into relationships. It is the fullness of knowing and being known by God. And and one day, without any of the distortion or selfishness of sin impacting our vision or impacting our experience or impacting our life, that we'll live in fullness and freedom. So this story is leading us somewhere. It certainly is leading us to a place of compassionate action. When we find ourselves standing like the lawyer in a place of of, of self-justifying comparison, and our world gives us so many opportunities for self-justifying comparison. Social media is running rampant with self-justifying comparison. Let me look at someone else's life and see where I'm falling short, or look at someone else's life and seeing where I'm superior to them. And we're doing this over and over and over again. We're asked to enter, because of this story, into a life of compassionate action. And the story shows us very clearly, knowledge is not action. So many of us in the Western church have been filled our entire lives, sermon after sermon with so much knowledge. And the knowledge puffs us up that we can give the right answer, but our lives are a shallow echo of that answer being actually lived out. The story of the Good Samaritan is calling us to a life of compassion and action, not to a life of self-justifying answers in our own mind. It's saying, move towards the other. Let it be at personal cost to yourself. It's a life of compassion and action. It's also calling us to a life of winning by losing of flipping the script of the American dream where only the winners are, 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 are celebrated. Only the winners get, get full and true life. We win by being the best. We win by being the strongest, but that's not the way of Jesus' descent into salvation. Trying hard is not salvation in the gospel. It's receiving the bankruptcy of our riches. It's receiving the fact that we can't do anything on, uh, on our own, that we have to utterly and totally come running to Christ, the best of us and the worst of us, equal at the foot of the cross. A life of compassion and action and a a life of winning by losing. And if you try to go out and do those first two, you're going to fail miserably unless you see that this story is about a life of participation. It is about entering into the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is not about following good examples by self-will. 
you and I are invited in this Easter tide to go with Jesus to the cross and to wake with Jesus to new life, to say, I'm not the captain of my own ship anymore. I'm not directing this story. I'm not the, the, the leading role in a play about myself. I, I am receiving life and life in all its fullness from the source, from Jesus. So if you want to know, how, well, am I living a life of compassion and action? Am I, am, am I willing to embrace winning by losing? Am I participating in the way of Jesus? Where are you running people down? Maybe you have enough politeness and respectability not to do it a lot in public, but in your own mind and heart, where are you running people down? Where are you safely protecting yourself by keeping distance from your neighbor? Where are you fighting humility? Where are you demanding to be in charge of your own story? You're like essentially spiritual, but not in relationship. I'll be the curator of my own soul's experience through this world. Do you know where to see Jesus? So often we want to see Jesus as an American winner conquering all. And he's inviting us in this story to see him beaten, humiliated, left for dead. One of the most staggering messages of the New Testament is that when we were enemies, Christ loved us when we were worse than the Samaritans could have ever been, Christ loved us. When we were the, the robbers who were beating him and crying, crucify him, Christ loved us. This is eternal life, that they know you, the, one, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, who loved us when we were his enemies. Do you think you can, if, if he loved you when he, you were his enemy, do you think you can come to a place where you fall out of that love? Like, oh, he's so shocked that you had this failure or this mistake, and now he's like, now I don't love you anymore. I, I withdraw my affection. I withdraw my salvation. Absolutely not. If we began with nothing on our resume and we received Christ's qualification. The Samaritan represents something of our, of our true condition needing rescue. Absolutely. But even more fully, Christ is the one who has entered into that place with and for us. And that is what we are called to participate in. When we help those in need, when we help our neighbor, when we are good Samaritans, we are doing that from a place of loving Christ. Mother Teresa said this over and over again about her staggering work with the poorest of the poor in India, that as she loved them, she was loving Christ. And that's the mystery the gospel calls alive in our hearts, that we don't do it by this propulsive self-will curating our own experience, but we fully surrender ourselves to the love of Jesus. And that love comes to define our love for our neighbor. Are you in a place where you're needing rescue? Are you in a place where you know you want to join in that type of love? I want to invite you to the feet of Jesus this morning. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, can we come to Christ today, not with the self-justifying questions of this lawyer, but with the honest desires and longings of our heart exposed, the places that we really are? Can we come to you, God, and would you show us life? Would you show us what loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like, loving our neighbor as ourself? God, we believe we cannot do this on our own. We have to do this by the way of the gospel, the way of receiving everything we truly need from you first and learning to live a new way because you've called us to be alive in a new way. Lead us, Holy Spirit. 
Jesus' name, amen.